Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Plum Crit 101. As always, I'm your host and friendly neighborhood intensivist, Dr. J. Today, we're going to discuss something that we see often in the ER and usually ends up in the ICU, and that's hypertensive emergency. And not to mention, I guarantee you there's going to be at least one or two questions on this topic on your boards. So we'll start off talking about terminology and how we define hypertensive emergency, and then we'll go into how these patients present and what workup you should order. And most importantly, we'll finish off by discussing how to manage these patients. So let's get right into it. What does it mean to say someone has a hypertensive emergency? Well, first let's back up and define hypertensive urgency. That's the patient that's asymptomatic, has a systolic blood pressure of 180 or more, a diastolic blood pressure of 120 or more, but they have no signs or symptoms of acute end organ damage. So then it would stand that hypertensive emergency would be someone who has that same severely elevated blood pressure, again, that cutoff of 180 over 120, along with signs or symptoms of acute end organ damage. So remember, the main difference here between urgency and emergency is the presence of acute end organ damage. Now, how are these patients going to present? It's usually going to be related to whatever end organ damage that may have developed. For example, If they have pulmonary edema, they'll be short of breath. If they have an MI or aortic dissection, they can have chest pain. If they have a stroke from their elevated blood pressure, they can present with focal neurologic symptoms. Or if their intracranial blood pressure is elevated, then they could have nausea and vomiting. It's very important to note what drugs your patient is on, not just illicit drugs, but also what antihypertensives they may have been on, especially if they recently stopped any, for example, clonidine. Other tests that we need to order include an EKG, a chest X-ray, a UA, a urine pregnancy test if applicable, because this will adjust your management. Always check your electrolytes and renal function and get a troponin and BMP if you are suspecting some sort of acute coronary syndrome or ACS. If your patient has neurologic symptoms, don't forget a CT head and always consider the utility of a 2D echo. All right, so now let's move on to the bulk of today's talk. How do we manage these patients? The first thing to understand here is that we shouldn't lower blood pressure too quickly or by too much. Why? Because of something called autoregulation. Basically, the body has gotten used to a higher level of blood pressure, and by lowering it too quickly or too fast, you can cause ischemia. So then what should our, should our goal be? Well, you'll want to gradually decrease the MAP. Notice I said MAP here, not systolic, not diastolic blood pressure, but the MAP by 10 to 20% in hour one and by another 5 to 15% over the next 23 hours. Usually this means you end up in a target blood pressure, blood pressure of less than 180 over 120 for hour one and then less than 160 over 110 for the next 23 hours. Usually we don't expect it to drop below 130 over 80. And after about 24 hours with your blood pressure at goal, you can then start oral meds and taper off whatever IV antihypertensives you were using. Now, there are some specific situations in which we don't follow that gradual decrease in blood pressure. Those would be an acute ischemic stroke, acute aortic dissection, or an intracerebral hemorrhage. If you've got a patient with an acute ischemic stroke and they meet criteria for reperfusion therapy, aka TPA, you're going to want to immediately lower that blood pressure to make sure it's less than 185 over 110 
in order to give that TPA. But if they're not a candidate for reperfusion therapy, then there's no role to lower the blood pressure unless it's more than 220 over 120. And then in an aortic dissection, you want to quickly lower the systolic blood pressure to 100 to 120, usually in about 20 minutes. And the reason why we do that is to reduce those aortic shearing forces. All right, so the question on everyone's mind, well, which antihypertensive do I use? Again, your choice is really going to be based on what other underlying condition may be going on based on the end organ damage that the patient has developed. So we kind of have uh, created two classes for these uh, drugs that you may use, vasodilators and adrenergic inhibitors. Let's talk about the vasodilators first. That's gonna include clavidipine, enalaprilat, phenoldopam, hydralazine, nicardipine, nitroglycerin, which I'll be calling nitro, and nitroprusside. We'll go into a little detail with each one of these. So enalaprilat and hydralazine, we use these uh, as scheduled doses, not as drips. And enalaprilat, we really don't use very commonly um, in, in the hospital, especially in the ICU. It has a very slow onset and a very long duration of effect. If you do use it, it's in a setting of someone who's got acute LV failure, but we try to avoid it in people with acute MI if they have impaired renal function or they're pregnant. We talk about hydralazine again, that's going to be used in scheduled doses, but you do have better options for that patient who's got the hypertensive emergency because of the fact that hydralazine can tank the blood pressure, it can cause tachycardia, flushing, headache, vomiting, and it can even aggravate angina. So now what drips do we have in the vasodilator class? Well, the first one we can talk about is clavidipine, also known as Clevaprex. This is a great vasodilator. It can be rapidly titrated, but you do have to be careful because it's delivered in a lipid emulsion. Usually it's well tolerated in most hypertensive emergencies, but you gotta watch out for the development of AFib, nausea, and because it's in that lipid emulsion, it can have potential allergens like soy and egg. Another really commonly used drip that we use is nicardipine or cardine. This is actually used in most hypertensive emergencies and even pregnancy induced, but a couple situations to avoid it in would be an acute CHF and then patients with MI. Side effects here would be tachycardia, headache, nausea, dizziness, flushing, phlebitis, and edema. Nitro or nitroglycerin is really good as an adjunct in those patients who've got ACS or an acute pulmonary edema. You do have some side effects you have to watch out for, and those are hypoxemia, tachycardia, headache, that's a big one, vomiting, flushing, methemoglobinemia, and again, they can get tolerant if you use it for long enough. Now, nitroprusside is another option, but we really should avoid this if we have other agents available simply because of that risk of cyanide toxicity. Nitroprusside should really also be avoided in the patient who's got an acute MI, CAD, stroke, intracranial hypertension, impaired renal or liver function. It can increase intracranial pressure, decrease cerebral blood flow, reduce coronary blood flow in CAD, and cause nausea, vomiting, muscle spasms, flushing, and sweating. So a lot of side effects. If you have to use nitroprusside, use it for as short of a time as possible and try not to go above two mics per kg per minute to avoid that cyanide toxicity. 
If you are required to use that maximum dose of eight to 10 mics per kg per minute, don't do it for more than 10 minutes. But if you're going above that time frame and at a faster rate with a higher dose, make sure to give your patient a sodium thiosulfate infusion at the same time to again, avoid that cyanide toxicity. And then you guys may have heard me mention phenyldopam earlier. I'm not really gonna touch on that much because no one really uses it anymore, at least at our institution we don't. But one thing to know is that you shouldn't use it in glaucoma patients or those who have a sulfite sensitivity. So let's move on to the other major class of drugs and that is the adrenergic inhibitors. So that includes esmolol, labetalol, metoprolol, and fentolamine. Fentolamine you're going to use specifically for that hypertensive emergency due to some sort of catecholamine excess, pheochromocytoma, or it's also an option in even someone who's overdosed on cocaine. Metoprolol and labetalol are again beta blockers, but you're going to use these as scheduled doses instead of drips. Side effects for both of these include nausea, vomiting. You can get paresthesias like tingling of the scalp, for example, bronchospasm, dizziness, and heart block. Remember, don't use these in acute uh, decompensated heart failure and avoid labetalol, especially if your patient's got obstructive or reactive airway disease. Metoprolol can be used in hypertensive emergency in an MI and perioperative hypertension, and labetalol can be used for pretty much all causes of hypertensive emergencies, including pregnancy and hypertensive encephalopathy. Now, esmolol is another great drip that just like clavidipine allows for rapid titration. And so you'll commonly see that used in periop hypertension, and you can also see that used with acute aortic dissection. Again, do not use this in acute decompensated heart failure. Well, I hope this episode was informative for everyone. I tried to give you guys a brief overview of how we define hypertensive emergency, what these patients will look like, and really most importantly, how we treat them. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you like best. I've placed a poll at the end of the episode if you are listening on Spotify. If you're able, please take the time to answer. And if you have any other questions or concerns, I can be reached via email at poemcrit101 at gmail.com, or you can always reach out to me on Instagram at poemcrit101. I'll see you guys next time.